sort of just recap where it is that we've been and what we're, what we're preaching through right now. We're in a, a series all about relationships that's uh, a weird sort of title. It's, the title is Blank Me, and uh, we're tackling all these different subjects that have to do with the relationship, different types of relationships that we have in our lives. And, um, you know, some, some, some relationships that maybe we, we will preach on or, or need to preach on, for example, like uh, marriage, that, that sort of relationship doesn't always apply to everybody at this particular moment in time. Not everybody's maybe married or, or a, a message on parenting or a series on parenting. Not everybody is uh, currently a parent. And so those messages are important for us to, to hear what the Bible has to say, what God's heart is towards those subjects. But, uh, you know, our hope in this whole series was to preach on a broad uh, spectrum of topics so that you know, we can address all, many different, probably not all, but many different aspects of the relationships that we have in our lives. And you know that relationships are one of the greatest gifts that we have and also one of the greatest challenges that we have, right? I mean, we were designed for relationship. We crave relationship. We, we seek after love and, and people to be around us. And yet it's also those very same people that can be the most uh, challenging things that we face, both because of their issues and our issues, and, and figuring out how to work, work things out interpersonally and otherwise. And so um, it's our hope that during this series that what it is that we're talking about from the scripture is really applicable to your life. We don't want to just preach these messages that are just sort of in the air and theological, but our hope is that, and our prayer is that it, you know, it's things that you can really apply, whether it's to you your parenting relationship or your marriage or your friendships or whatever it is. And so today the subject of the message and the title is Stir Me, and the theme uh, or the subject is a type of relationship that uh, maybe not everybody in this room has right now, but everybody in this room can have it, and I would argue that everybody in this room probably should have at least one of these relationships. And so I hope that by the end of our time together that you will agree with me and that you would consider if you're not currently walking in this type of relationship or even seeing the value of it, that um, you would maybe pursue it and that you would seek after it and you would invite somebody else to uh, reflect this aspect of one of the designs that I think that God has given us. And so we're going we're gonna to read and look at a particular um, passage in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 19 here in a moment. I just want to um, just give a, a little bit of context for what it is that we're going to be reading. So as we jump in, uh, I confess to you that the text is a little, a little deep, a little complex. There's a lot that's going on. And so I just want to invite you not to tune out of it, not to think to yourself, well, man, I don't necessarily understand all the terms, that everything that is, is being said uh, but just to stick with me, because I think that the Holy Spirit is going to speak, and I'm going to try my best to make it as simple as possible. But this book is one of the more complex books in the New Testament. Some books are maybe a little easier to understand. Some are harder to understand. It's my belief that just because something is complex and deep, uh, that doesn't mean that we should just you know, forget about it. Gold is worth digging for, right? And so there are, there are things of God that are worth spending time studying and, and really looking into and, and discerning what it is that this is actually saying. And, and just because we don't currently have a level of knowledge doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue it. 
And so this book is one of the more challenging books. The author of this book, uh, he even begins the book by saying, long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the, through the prophets. So we know right off the bat that this book was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And if you read through uh, the next uh, 10 chapters, you're going to notice that the author is expecting the readers or the hearers to have a pretty vast and great knowledge of all of the things of God and all the things that God has done throughout God's people throughout history. And so there's an expectation that the people that are reading this know quite a bit about what is going on, quite a bit about the Old Testament scriptures, quite a bit about all of God's ways and God's will and God's desire for them. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and, and you don't know much about the Bible, or you, you, know, you don't have a vast knowledge of all of all of the biblical things and, and all of the things of God, that's okay, you're in the right place. Even though this particular author and this particular book is written in that way, uh, you're, you belong here today, and we're so glad that you're with us. If you feel like you're far from God, if you feel like you don't know much about the Bible or much about God, that this is exactly where you should be, and we're so glad you're with us. And so as we jump in, I just want to uh, sort of set the stage for you that the author is... is writing about all kinds of themes, and to put it, uh, put it simply, what, he, what he's doing is he's talking about, in a broad way, all of the things that God has done with humanity and uh, in relationship with himself throughout all of history, and he's comparing and contrasting all of those things, talking about the angels speaking to people, talking about the, the Torah or the written word of God, talking about the leaders and the, the priests, talking about people like Moses and Abraham, talking about the rules and regulations that God gave, talking about the, the rituals that he gave with the temple, talking about the covenants and the sacrifices, talking about all of those things in a broad way and how they compared, how they compared to what God was doing in the person of Jesus in a poignant way. So he's, he's comparing and contrasting all of the history with what God was doing in the person of Jesus Christ in this particular po point in history. And that's where we find ourselves. After talking about all of those things, he sort of turns the chapter and, uh, and says, after describing all of these spiritual things and what it means between us and God, he sort of turns the page and says, now let me talk for a moment about what this means for you in your relationships with the people around you. And in one small way, he says this, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's saying this after describing all the ways that because of Jesus we can now enter into God's presence. He says, by a new and living way that was opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Again, this is a layered text. He's talking about the fact that God's presence for so, so much time in the Old Testament, God chose to dwell in one particular location. His presence was in the Holy of Holies, that is one particular place in the temple, behind a curtain that was very tall and very thick, and only one day a year, one person could enter into that location and be in God's presence. Other than that, humanity was, uh, in a personal way, separated from the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, at the very moment that he breathed his last breath, that curtain in the temple temple tore from top to bottom, signifying that God was releasing his presence for all of humanity for the rest of time. That's a beautiful thing. And so this writer is, is reminding us that because of his flesh, the curtain or that separating thing from God's presence has been torn open and removed. 
Verse 21, and since we have a, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with the hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, speaking about the cleansing rituals of the temple. But then now that God has done that and cleansed us in our hearts, not just in an outward way, but an inward way. Verse 23, Now let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now here's the application to it. And let us consider how we might stir one another on towards love and good deeds. Go ahead and stir up your neighbor real quick. Stir him up. Stir him up. It is unclear what that means, isn't it, Jamie? Thank you. Jamie, it's unclear what that means. Well, the, the Bible says consider how you might do it, so you should probably think about it. No, I just wanted to see what it would look like. Uh, some of you sh- shook your friend a little bit or elbowed him. Uh, it is kind of like, what does that mean? Well, the word, just so you know, it, it, it's actually a little, a little sharper of a word than maybe encouragement or coddle or love. It, it, it's a word that your version might say spur one another on. You know, like the spurs on the back of a, a cowboy's, you know, like that doesn't probably feel good. I don't know. I, I've never been spurred before, but, you know, getting kicked in the side with some pokes probably doesn't feel good. Your version might say provoke or motivate. This word is, is a sharper word. It's a word that it, it takes intentionality. It might not feel the most comfortable to you, but that's what the, the, the writer is inviting us into. I would say even commanding us to do that we would consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You're going to see that he also says that we should encourage one another. Those are different terms. But it says this, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good works. Those are positive things. Not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another, there's the positive word, encouraging one another all the more as you see the great day, that's the day of the Lord, drawing near. Here's the part of the passage that gets a little harder to hear. But just because something's hard to talk about doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses speaking to an audience that surely would have known that if you disobey the Torah or the law of Moses, the first five books in the Old Testament, if they were to disobey God's law, that they were to be put to death. And so he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. For it's a a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. To put it simply, I want to draw your attention to the fact that, uh, and we didn't read it all, but after talking about all of these things that God has done, describing for us Jesus, he says, now we must consider how to both encourage and spur one another on towards walking away from deliberately continuing to sin, 
but also how to move on towards love and good works. He's talking about sin, which you could call the negative things. He's also talking about love and good works, which we could call the positive things. And it's an invitation for us to not give up meeting together, not forsake that, but to consider how we might be a part of the work of encouraging and spurring or stirring one another on towards those things. So I'd like to um, pray and then jump into this. I think we all need God's grace for this message. And so would you pray with me? Lord, we just invite you into this time, and we thank you for your word, your written word, your revealed word to us. We also thank you for your, your Holy Spirit that's with us right now, and we invite you to speak to us. I recognize, Lord, there's probably some people in this room that maybe they don't even believe in you, or maybe they don't, they don't know you in a personal way, and, and many of us, of course, we know you, and I just want to commit every one of my friends to you for wherever they're at on their journey that you would speak to them in a way, in a language that they would understand, that you would transcend my earthly words and that you would speak through your spirit right to their heart, whatever it is that, that you want to speak to them. And together as a faith community that you speak to all of us, that we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your ways and that we know that you have our best in mind and that as we leave this place, we will walk out of here uh, reflecting you, being more like Jesus, and representing you and building your kingdom in this city. We commit, commit all of uh, this time to you and our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know how uh, we have friends that sometimes we, life just takes us other directions. And of course you probably have friends here in town. You have friends that are sitting next to you, close to you. And, but maybe you graduate from college or somebody gets a job somewhere. Or whatever it is, you end up living in different states or different countries. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool time that we live in because we have cell phones, we have the internet, we even have cool things like FaceTime where we can stay connected with people uh, for very low costs all over the world. We, we live in a global society now, and I have one friend that, uh, that I like to stay connected with. We have a, a, a good brotherly relationship, and he moved thousands of miles away a couple years ago. And, but we still stay connected because that's just uh, the relationship value that we have. And uh, we probably talk uh, either by text or Marco Polo or even FaceTime a couple times a month. And just a few weeks ago, I had this, this FaceTime call lined up with him. And I just thought we were going to be catching up like normal, uh, you know, just chatting like we usually do to see how things are going. And, and so I got on the FaceTime call, and he says to me, hey, Craig, why don't we open in prayer? And I thought, oh, sure. I mean, like, I'm, I'm spiritual and everything because I'm a pastor, but I don't open every phone call with prayer. You know, like, so he's, but yeah, let's, let's do that. And so, you know, and it's cool. You could pray over FaceTime. You could, you could pray and stand with people that are, you know, wherever. And so we start praying. And he says, Lord, I just ask that Craig will just be able to hear what I need to say to him. And <laughs> you know, like that's the moment where you go, Oh, it's one of those calls. You know, like one of those conversations. That's a stirring conversation. He was considering how he could stir me towards love and good deeds. And he, he then went on. It was a great conversation, but he delivered to me not one or two, but three pages of handwritten notes on legal form. 
And I'm not saying that all of it was critiques, but it wasn't necessarily the most comfortable conversation I've ever had. And it's, it's exactly that sort of relationship, that sort of interaction that the writer is inviting us into here in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's exactly that sort of relationship and that sort of interaction that I just want to begin today by asking you, do you have those type, those type of conversations? Do you have any, any relationship of that sort, any person in your world that you've given access to your heart in that way? I, I, I get it. I know from personal experience, I can't stand those conversations. They don't feel good. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always feel like an encouragement but when it's somebody that you know really loves you and really cares for your best and it, it's somebody that even though they might be pointing out your blind spots and they know that you know that they have your best in mind, those conversations are one of the greatest blessings that we can have. Do you have any of those relationships? Here in Hebrews 10, uh, the, the writer has spent all of this time describing to us all that God has done, and I'll just quickly uh, just recap it for you, just so, so we can really sort of get the, the, uh, the depth of what it is that he's inviting us into. Uh, if you broke up the book of Hebrews into four basic sections, you would see that there's kind of four general areas that he's comparing Jesus to, but along with each one of them comes a warning. Now, I know that, like, we typically don't seem to like warnings. Um, it can feel really threatening to us, like, you know, I'm warning you. But a, a warning can actually be a really healthy thing. You know, if you're walking off a cliff and you're going to die, you might appreciate a warning sign, right? And so in this book, there are some things that are said, some truths that are revealed, but also some, some warnings that go along with it. And so I'll, I'll quickly recap them for you. In the, in the book, the, the author writes about not only comparing Jesus to the angels in the Torah, that is, the way that God spoke to humanity, both through his angels and through his written, written word, but he goes out of his way to say that Jesus is actually above the angels in the Torah, that he, what he represents of God's communication to us is greater than the way that he spoke to people through the angels and through the written word, that Jesus is the word in the flesh. And the warning along with it comes that if we were called to pay attention to the message sent by the angels in the days of old, how much more ought we to listen to Jesus himself? He goes on to talk about and compare Jesus to Moses and the promised land. We know that, that Moses was one of the great and first leaders of God's people. He was, he was the guy that went into the land of Egypt and brought his people out of slavery and was to lead them into the physical promised land. And so the warning came with this, that if Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes for you and I? How much more uh, do we need to not rebel against this Jesus, this Savior of ours, and miss the eternal promised land. He goes on to talk about the priests, and a particular priest by the name of Melchizedek, and he's, he describes how the priests were the, the pastors of the time, those, those inter, intermediaries, the people that connected all the quote-unquote regular people to God, and he goes on to say that Jesus is the final and the high priest, and now we no longer have to go through any human inter, intermediary, but we can go directly to God's presence because Jesus himself has made a way. 
This is an amazing thing. That, this is why the scripture says that we can enter boldly into God's presence and we don't have to be separated from God any longer because Jesus has made a way for us to enter into his presence. But the warning along with this comes, uh, comes this warning. If you reject Jesus, you reject the only way to be fully and truly reconciled to God. And he goes on to talk about the sacrifices and the covenants. The sacrifices are, are the ways that humans like you and I would approach God in order to be forgiven for our sin. Our brothers and sisters in the days of old would need to go to the temple with an animal, lay their own hand on the animal's head, and cut the throat with their own hand. Signifying, God, I recognize that it's my sin that is making this animal be put to death. It's my wrong and my fault that requires a sacrifice in the blood. But the, the author of this book says, it, j- that's the way that it used to need to be done. But Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, got on that cross on our behalf. And he became the last, final, and ultimate sacrifice for us. Starting a new covenant agreement between God and man. We just celebrated it in taking communion. We recognize that he gave his body for us and that he shed his blood for us so that we could be connected to him. And the warning along with it came this. Let us not walk away from Jesus. And further, after we've received the knowledge of that truth, let us be careful that we don't continue to deliberately sin, therefore trampling Jesus and his sacrifice under our feet. Hebrews 10 is is actually one of the most challenging passages in regards to sin. And so, to put all that simply, what he's talking about is that There's all of these things that God has done throughout history with humanity that were great and mighty, and all of them, the point of all of them, comes to fruition and conclusion in the person of Jesus. That in the person of Jesus, God has made a way for a broken and separated people to be totally and completely redeemed, restored, and reconciled with the God of the universe. And so I don't know, if if maybe you don't know this yet, the way that the Bible describes Your condition and my condition apart from Christ is much like this plant right here. That we are completely dead. That we've all chosen at one point to to drink the poison. The biblical words for that are sin or transgression. Whatever it is, it's, it's this idea that we've all turned from God in one way or another. And we didn't just do something that was wrong or something that was bad. That because... But the, really, the, the biblical narrative says that because of our sin, we're not just sort of separated from God, but we're completely dead in our transgressions and sins. That's our reality that we're in. But through what Jesus did on the cross, and through God's grace and his mercy and his great love for us, he has, made, he has given us the ability to come alive in him. And so here this vase here, the second vase, represents a new life. It's it's a plant that's gone from totally being dead to being alive. And I just want to draw your attention to the idea that everything that happens between death and life, everything in this gap right here is only things that God can do. Making you go from death to life is something that only God can do. It's not something that your pastor can do for you. 
It's not something that your religious grandmother can, can pray for you. It's not something that you even just coming and sitting in church year after year after year can accomplish for you. What, what needs to happen in order to go from death to life is that God would do a work inside of your heart through faith. And when God does that, the Bible says, anyone who is in Christ is a brand new creation. Behold, the all, thing, the, all the old things have passed away and everything has been made new. And everything from death to life is only what God can do. But everything from new birth onto fruitfulness, I would argue today, is not simply or only what God can do in you, but that God designed it so that there will be a cooperation between what him and his Holy Spirit wants to do in us, but also what the people around us are going to help us to grow in. The biblical word for this space right here is sanctification. It's the process of becoming holy. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's the process of, of coming alive, but growing towards fruitfulness. And I would argue today that while there's the greatest work that only God can accomplish in our life. The response to that work or the, the growth steps that come from that work actually re require other people along with the Holy Spirit. We see this all throughout the scriptures that even David, a man after God's own heart, needed the prophet to come to him and illuminate for him the, the issue that he was having in his interaction with Bathsheba. And he pointed out to him that you're doing, you're doing great evil, David in the eyes of the Lord, and, and, and he was called out for that. Even the Apostle Paul, who, who we all look to as such an amazing person, he was on his, on his way to Damascus, and Jesus literally shows up to him and speaks to him directly in one moment in time, but then Jesus sends him on to the city, and after that, he says, no, I'm not going to speak directly to you right now. I'm going to send Ananias to you to give you my message. And so God sent Ananias to, to him to say, hey, you're going to be my servant to take my name before the Gentiles and the kings and all of Israel. And we see this time and time again that God, yes, he likes to speak to us through his spirit directly to our hearts, but he also uses other people. And so what I'm trying to convince you of today is that while, of course, the greatest work that we need in our heart is a work that only God can do, that there's a, a, a work that comes after that, partially that God is inviting us into through the relationships and interactions that we have with other people. They are both encouraging and stirring relationships. The scripture says, now that we've recognized how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment and has done all of this for you, therefore, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, don't give up meeting with one another. It's not just between you and God. Don't give up meeting with one another and consider how you might both spur on and encourage one another, both towards love and good deeds and away from the sin of the ways of the past. And so he's talking about growing from, say, the negative things, that is the sinful things that we, we used to give ourselves to, the, the, the choices to sin, to grow, to grow from those areas. But, you know, life is not just about learning to not sin. Life is about, of course, you know, giving our life to the Lord that we would 
begin, you know, stepping away from sinful choices, but also it's about so much more. It's about growing into and living into all the good things that God has for us. And so it's the encouragement that we would consider how to spur and encourage one another on away from sin and towards love and good deeds. Now, I just want to uh, point out one thing about what the scripture says. It's, I don't know if you caught the term, but it says it, deliberate sin or consciously sinning. And I just want you to know that there is a difference between making mistakes in life and choosing to give ourselves over to sin. Uh, there was a gal last weekend after, when J.O. was giving the altar call. She came forward and she, she gave her life to the Lord. Uh, we were praying right up here at the altar and she said, I want, I want God to have my heart and I want to get baptized and we did baptisms last weekend, and so it was, but it was at the end of the gathering that she was forward talking to me, and we had done them during worship, and I said, well, do you want to get baptized right now? And she said, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> and I said, yeah, absolutely. In the Bible, they do it all the time. Like, they were saved and they were baptized. Now, I'm, I need you to understand what that means, and so we talked about it, but she said, well, I really, really want to do that, but I'm scared that I might sin after I'm baptized. And I said, oh, don't worry, you probably will. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, somebody told her or spoke the message to her that if you're really going to follow God, then you need to promise that you're going to be perfect. And I just want you to know, in giving our heart to God or getting baptized, or, you know, what it means to come to God is not a promise of our perfection. We really can't do that. It's, it's a pursuit of our intention, not a promise of our perfection, right? We're saying to God, God, I'm pursuing you, and I, and I beg by your grace and your strength inside of me that my motivation and my intention would always be for you and your ways. But we acknowledge, you know, we're probably all going to make mistakes throughout the rest of our earthly life. We're all going to sin here and there, but there's a difference between saying, God, I don't want to sin, and I need your grace to empower that ability in me as I grow and learn what it is to become more like Jesus. I'm not willingly giving myself over to it. There's a difference between that heart and that attitude and just saying, you know what? I'm just going to sin because it doesn't matter. Those two things are very different, right? And what he's saying here is if we deliberately go on sinning after we receive the knowledge of God, it's like we're trampling Jesus' sacrifice under our feet. That's a scary thing. And so we, eat, we all have blind spots. We all have areas, whether it's, it's areas of sin in our life or just areas of character issues that we need to work on or areas of maybe even, hey, God has all this for you. These things that I see in you, these giftings, this design, and you're not walking on them. Whatever it is, we, we've been invited to have that type of relationship with one another where we would stir each other up. We would spur each other on where we would, in the context of real love and real relationship, that we would encourage one another to be and do and fulfill all that God has for us. And so again, I ask you, do you have any relationships like that in your life? I was messing with a friend of mine named Ron Buck. I don't know if you know Ron. 
awesome guy, and uh, just because this message is on, he had no idea what I was preaching about, but we were in the lobby last night before gathering, and I, uh, the theme was on my mind, and so I said, hey, Ron, do you have anybody in your world that, that spurs you on or calls you out or encourages you other than your wife? And he says, yeah, absolutely. He says, what does the scripture say? And I said, well, you mean like the verse that says iron sharpens iron? He says, exactly. I said, okay, I don't get it. He said, I, Ron, sharpen I, Ron. (laughs) And I was like, you couldn't be more wrong. And he gave me permission to share that. It was beautiful how incorrect he was. Because God didn't design us to sharpen ourselves. As iron sharpens iron, so one man or one woman sharpens another. We were designed to need each other. I think it's like 57 times in the New Testament we're commanded to do something to or for one another. We need these relationships in our life. Do you have any relationships like that in your world? Now, of course, the application to a message like this, you know, on the surface can be very simple. Like, do you have a mentor? Get a mentor. You think in yourself, I'm too old for a mentor. No, you're not. I hope that I have mentors and people that speak into my life until the day that I die because I always want to be growing in the ways of the Lord. Our pastors have pastors. All of the people on staff here have pastors and mentors. In fact, it's an expectation that we're, we're uh, speaking truth into each other's lives within the context of love and relationship. And so I'm not saying that it needs to be a pastor for you or, or even one particular person that you're like, hey, let's sit down and you mentor me every second Tuesday of the month or whatever. But is there anybody in your world that has access to your heart in that way? Do you, do you have a small group? Are you currently involved in a city group or, or some sort of relational community where people actually know you? And all of those things are, are, are applications that we could give to a message like this, but I just primarily want to step back a layer and just and, and ask you, do you even have a desire to grow in the ways of the Lord? Like if you think about this analogy, which is not perfect, but you know, where are you on this spectrum? Are you content with saying, you know what, I have a relationship with Jesus, and I know one day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven? Or is, is there the work of the Holy Spirit in you that's stirring you to say, I want to continue to walk away from the ways of the past. I don't want to ever drink of that poison again because I have a heart to follow Jesus and grow in his ways. Is it truly your desire to grow and mature in the ways of Christ? And if it is, then those uncomfortable conversations, those hard conversations are going to be one of the things that help you grow in that way. And so if you don't have anybody in your world like that, I just want to invite you to consider that. Who might you give access to your heart in that way to? Who could you possibly invite Somebody that you trust. You know, we all have people that criticize and critique in our world. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, probably most of us could do with a little less just criticism from people that don't actually know us. But probably most of us could do with a little bit more sharpening, mentoring, coaching, stirring from people that do know us. Just by way of transparency so you know that 
I walk through this. I'll share with you a few of the things that I've heard. This is a short list. From some, from some people that I know really love me and care about me enough to have the guts to share with me hard conversations. I've heard this. Hey, Craig, I know that you like to wear your heart on your sleeve, but when you're upset and you let everybody else know it, it's really not helpful. Maybe you could just consider putting some faith on your face and being a leader. Yeah, but I don't like being fake. I know, Craig. I know, man, but God's called you to rise above your emotions. Hey, Craig, people think that you're mad at them because the expression on your face doesn't always express to people what's actually going on in your heart. Hey, Craig, you don't always have to have an opinion about everything. I got an opinion about that. found my first job review from 2011. We moved last week, and so I found all this stuff. I, I don't know if I told you this, Jeff. I found my first job review that J.O. wrote for me in 2011, and it said, you don't need to have an opinion about everything. <laughs> I know you do. That's why you said it, because you love me. Because people that really love you have your best in mind, and they want to see you grow. Hey, Craig, when it comes to having hard conversations, you can get really weird. <laughs> hey, Craig, it seems like when somebody brings a critique to you, your immediate response is defensiveness, and you always have a quick rebuttal. Yeah, but... The scripture says... Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, when you have somebody that really loves you, it's a good thing when it hurts a little bit. We should be leery of the kisses and the compliments of people that don't actually have our best in mind because it puffs us up and it might be the worst thing that, for us. We live in a culture right now where everybody just wants to, you know, feel good. Just don't say anything negative. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about just crit criticizing people to tear them down. We don't need that. But we just don't need people that are just fluffing us up all the time. What we need is people that have our best in mind. They want to see us move from sin in the ways of the past on towards love and good works and all of the great design that God has for us. And sometimes that's found in the context of hard conversations but it's good and it's meant to sharpen you and be for, for your growth and to help you accomplish all that God has for you.